0: Welcome to Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm
1: John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every week, we descend into Room 106, the chamber of horrors in which professionals encounter all new planning information and extract the key things you need to know. In this
0: bonus edition, we'll discuss Housing Secretary Michael Gove's letter to local authorities, urging them to be open to requests from developers who say that their schemes can no longer viably comply with the local plan. Later on, we'll also be asking why England's green belt is getting bigger. But before we get into that,
1: John, tell us about the key news stories from the past seven days. Well, there was some big breaking news on Monday when it came to the revolving door at the housing ministry. Rachel McLean announced that she had been asked to step down from her role as Housing and Planning Minister after just nine months as part of Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's Cabinet reshuffle. It had been widely reported as of late Monday afternoon that Lee Rowley, a junior minister at the Housing Department, had been appointed as her successor, but that had not been confirmed by the department. In other news, a promised bill tackling the nutrient neutrality housing logjam was omitted from last week's King's Speech, which sets out the government's legislative programme for the next year. This was despite the Housing Secretary announcing last month that such a bill would be included. Keir Starmer, the leader of the opposition, criticised the Prime Minister for failing to include a planning bill in the King's Speech, saying one was needed to get Britain building. The King's speech also revealed the government's plan to press ahead with a controversial bill designed to remove a key planning obstacle to the construction of the proposed National Holocaust Memorial in Westminster. And finally, the number of planners working in the public sector shrunk by a quarter between 2009 and 2020, while median salaries have effectively fallen from £50,000 in 2005 to £33,000 today, This is according to a Royal Town Planning Institute report.
0: Thanks very much, John. And of course, more details on each of those stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. You'll also soon be able to sign up to our next webinar on how to meet the new requirement to ensure that new development brings biodiversity improvements. Okay, so now to return to Room 106 for our deep dive. See you later, John. Good luck. Well, here I am back in room 106. Now, I need to make my way across to the section of room 106 where they keep the letters from the Secretary of State, where I hope I will find our Insight Editor, Samantha Reckford. Oh, there she is. Hi, Sam. Hi, Richard. So, Sam, right at the end of last month, Michael Gove wrote to Council Chief Executives and leaders about planning matters. So, what were the key messages of his letter?
2: Well, he said that he wanted to make clear his expectation that development should proceed on sites that are adopted in a local plan with full input from the local community unless there are strong reasons why it cannot. He added that councils should be open and pragmatic in agreeing changes to development where conditions mean that the original plan may no longer be viable, rather than losing the development wholesale or seeing development mothballed. Authorities should also make better use of small pockets of brownfield land by being more permissive. So more homes can be built more quickly where and how it makes sense, giving more confidence and certainty to SME builders, he said. He went on to say that in the interim, before the introduction of this uh, proposed new style of local plan making, authorities should continue to adopt ambitious local plans and that those that fail to do that are likely to be subject to the presumption in favour of sustainable development when facing applications.
0: Okay, so to take the first of those, is it likely, this letter, to make councils or planning inspectors more likely to approve schemes when it's claimed that they can't viably comply with the local plan
2: there was pretty broad consensus here that the letter in itself isn't really strong enough to change policy but potentially is a is a helpful reaffirmation from government that they expect authorities to take this open and pragmatic approach while it could be cited as a material consideration in planning decisions compared to other material considerations such as national policy or guidance it, it wouldn't hold obviously the same weight which therefore limits its impact in this regard. There was suggestion that the letter might give developers some confidence in bringing forward some applications to vary conditions where viability is an issue and could potentially help to kickstart pre-application discussions. There was also suggestion that the letter's point about viability actually directly contradicts the government's planning practice guidance on this issue. So according to Mike Kiley, who's the chair of the Planning Officers Society, the PPG tells councils and developers that should a viability consideration arise, developers should use their risk profit, which serves as a cushion, before the authority grants any concessions viability-wise. However, what Gove seems to be saying here contradicts that point and could mean that councils that don't know their PPG well enough might be caught out and could potentially forego affordable housing, um, that they're actually perfectly entitled to hold developers to build out.
0: Okay. It's a sort of strange mix of reaction where, where people are saying it doesn't really change the Policy or, or, or change guidance, but it is something that you know could justifiably be seen as a consideration, and therefore may prompt developers to try and open this kind of discussion about viability and arguing that uh, they can no longer viably meet requirements in a local plan, and might persuade some authorities that they should um, be open to those sort of discussions.
2: Potentially, yes, but the was agreement that the letter on its own um, it's probably not strong enough or specific enough to fundamentally shift authorities' or developers' approach.
0: I was kind of hearing that an authority that thinks thinks it has good grounds to um, insist that its uh, local plan policies are followed, those grounds won't have uh, have weakened much as a result of this letter. Exactly. Okay, what about what he said about making better use of small pockets of Brownfield land by being more permissive?
2: Again, there was concern the letter doesn't say anything specific enough to, to meaningfully change authorities' approach, but there was some hope from house builders that this instruction might potentially prompt authorities to think about how to bring these smaller medium sites forwards, for example, via supplementary policies on urban intensification or a more widespread use of brownfield registers.
0: Okay, and what about his point that authorities should continue to adopt ambitious local plans?
2: Again, commentators agreed that what he's saying here um, sort of contradicts the proposals that the government has consulted on in terms of tweaking um, what the MPF says about how local authorities meet their housing needs. So he's inviting councils to adopt ambitious local plans. But on the other hand, has consulted on changes to the MPPF that would potentially encourage local authorities to not meet this um, housing need in full. One example of an authority that has recently opted to pursue a local plan that doesn't meet the standard method requirement in full as a result of the government's proposed changes to the national planning system is North Somerset, which has now submitted its plan for examination despite it not meeting these housing needs in full.
0: Okay, well, um, thank you very much for that, Sam. I'll leave you here just in case any more letters from the Secretary of State flutter in in the next few days. But look forward to seeing you in Room 106 again soon.
2: Yes, see you soon.
0: Okay, well, I now need to make my way over to the statistical section of room 106. So that involves a bit of a trek across to another part of the catacombs where I'm hoping to find our reporter, Alex King. And I think if I just poke my head under this eave, I might find Alex. Hi.
3: Hi there.
0: So Alex, you've been looking at the statistic that some people might find surprising, given some of the rhetoric about the the Greenbelt that we hear, that actually the area covered by Greenbelt
3: in England is now the highest it's been for 20 years. That's correct. According to the latest government figures, 1,638,420 hectares, or 12.6% of the land area of England is now designated as Greenbelt land as of the 31st of March 2023. Just to put that in perspective, that is the highest figure reported since 2003, when 1,668,160 hectares of land was designated as Greenbelt.
0: So it seems that it's not changing very much, but there are some fluctuations year on year. So so how much does that figure tend to
3: fluctuate? Between 2003 and 2023, Greenbelt remained between 1,612,980 hectares and 1,668,160 hectares. So it's only fluctuated by around 55,000 hectares in that time. That said, for most of the past decade, there has been consistent minor reductions in Greenbelt, except that is for the last two years when it's grown. So in 2021, there was a gain of 24,150 hectares And in 2022, there was a gain of 870 hectares. Okay, so briefly, what's been behind the increases in the last couple of years? The increase in the past two years has been driven by two local authorities adopting local plans that actually boosted the amount of of designated land in their districts. So first, North Hertfordshire Council in 2022 added 3,350 hectares of land, in the review of its local plan, and the main reason for this was to complete the Greenbelt around Luton, and in particular because of the development of a ring road. The previous year's increase was down to Northumberland Council's increase to the amount of Greenbelt in its district by 26,790 hectares, and this was because Northumberland had adopted a local plan codifying boundaries that had already been agreed in principle many years earlier through an earlier structure or regional plan process
0: going back to the sort of national picture. So we're, we're seeing levels of Greenbelt rising again. Does that mean that local planning authorities have stopped releasing Greenbelt for development?
3: Not exactly. So when I talked to the countryside charity, CPRE, they pointed out that despite the overall figures appearing to show growth in the Greenbelt, many more local authorities have, in fact, removed land from it recently. So in the past two years alone, some 17 local authorities have removed land from the Greenbelt. And government figures bear this out, showing that on average, 10 local planning authorities changed their Greenbelt boundaries each year over the last 10 years.
0: Okay, although not all of those would have been local planning authorities who were uh, reducing the Greenbelt level.
3: Correct, yeah. Some of them would have been adding it as well.
0: But the big increase in Greenbelt in the last couple of years, there's one or two authorities adding substantially to their Greenbelt is maybe concealing the fact that there are a lot of other authorities who are, uh, who are sort of taking away small bits of their green belt.
3: Yes, that's correct. Yeah. So one or two authorities kind of mask the reality that many more local authorities are sort of tinkering at the edges of their greenbelt in their districts.
0: And the number of local planning authorities that changed greenbelt boundaries last year is
3: the lowest for five or six years. Any reason behind that? Well, the slowdown of, in preparation of local plans could be a factor. So one planning advisor I spoke to said the slowdown in the preparation and adoption of local plans has in turn slowed down local authorities' decisions on whether to change Greenbelt boundaries.
0: I've read, maybe in your article actually, that people see it as politically unattractive for local planning authorities to progress local plans when they're currently protected by Greenbelt. It, it's um, very difficult for them politically to take forward a local plan, which is then going to take away some of that protection.
3: Exactly, yeah. In essence, they they duck the plan making process to essentially avoid the political ramifications of proposing Greenbelt release.
0: Bearing that in mind, are
3: Greenbelt changes likely to become more common in the future? It's hard to say, but the the same planning advisor who pointed out the slowdown in plan making also cautiously suggested that the levelling up and regeneration bill, which received royal assent the week before last, could be a first step towards speeding these decisions up. And indeed, there are signs of local authorities restarting their local plans now.
0: Okay, interesting. So, you know, literally because uh, anything that manages to galvanise the plan-making process could also make Greenbelt changes, um, uh, both additions and and reductions, more more likely.
3: That's correct, yeah.
0: And I believe that North Somerset Council is in the throes of expanding its Greenbelt. What's the likelihood of others
3: following suit? From what I gathered... Commentators weren't too sure that this trend of Greenbelt boundary changes would continue in the absence of more cross local authority boundary strategic planning. After all, Greenbelt is a a strategic planning designation, and we don't really have any strategic planning going on at the moment. Although another consultant did see some scope for strategic Greenbelt additions if new towns, which Labour leader Keir Starmer said his party would build if in power after the next election, were to materialise. There is possibly scope for more of this happening, but at the moment it's difficult to see.
0: Okay, Alex, well, um, thank you very much for that. I will leave you in here, uh, poring over those greenbelt statistics and um, look forward to, uh, to seeing you in Room 106 again soon. See you later. Okay, well, time to get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Great, that's another edition completed. We'll be back next week with another update on the past fortnight's biggest planning news stories. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts and to get a daily bulletin of planning news plus weekly analysis and specialist bulletins subscribe at planningresource.co.uk and just a reminder to make sure that you get the recognition for the excellent planning work that you're doing by entering the Planning Awards, which have now opened for entry for next year's awards. And you can find out all the details on planningawards.com. Our thanks to producers Inga Marsden from Haymarket Business Media and Daisy Chaku from Rethink. And thanks for listening.